This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at uh, verses 13 through 22. Our focus particularly is on verses 18 and following, but we'll start reading in verse 13. Page 887 in the Pew Bibles, John chapter 2, verse 13. Hear the word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, life-giving word, true word, divine word. Father, we recognize that this isn't a book of history or wisdom Ultimately, this is your word, your revelation of your grace centered in and accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray as we study your word this morning that you would enable us to learn from it, that you would enable us to worship you even as we look at this passage, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Groundhog Day, Phil Connors, weatherman with WPBH-TV Pittsburgh, goes up to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, for the Groundhog Day festivities. The problem, of course, is he can't stand Groundhog Day or Punxsutawney. He thinks the whole thing is hickish and people are going to see him doing this and think he doesn't have a future. Well, he goes through with it, but he gets stuck stuck that day in Punxsutawney because of the blizzard that he had forecast wasn't going to happen. And the next day, supposedly, he wakens to the melodious sounds of Sonny and Cher's I've Got You, Babe, only to discover that, mysteriously, it's Groundhog Day 
all over again. Well, as the movie goes on and Groundhog Day keeps going on over and over, he tries in vain to convince Rita, his producer, of what's going on. Of course, neither she nor anyone else are experiencing this phenomenon. To them, it's just Groundhog Day. Well, finally, in desperation, he takes her and introduces her to several different persons in the tip-top cafe, and as he does so, he tells her all about them. Of course he knows all about them. He's lived Groundhog Day hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so he goes from person to person, introduces Rita to them, and tells all about them and what they do and where they're from and what they're like. And she's almost convinced. They sit down in a booth. And Phil tells her that Larry, the cameraman, is about to walk in. And he grabs a pen, he grabs a piece of paper, and he writes on the paper, and he folds it and hands it to Rita. And about that time, Larry walks in and says, you ready? We better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. And Rita takes that piece of paper, and she unfolds it and reads it. We better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. The Old Testament tells us that the test of a prophet is whether what he prophesies comes true. In the passage that we have before us this morning, Jesus makes a prophecy as a sign about who he is. And the test, of course, is whether that prophecy, whether that statement comes true. His entire credibility is riding on whether or not it comes true. It's a sign that he is who he claims to be. Now, we begin in verse 13 with this statement that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he wasn't alone. In fact, Jerusalem expanded exponentially in size during the Passover because people came from all over, Jews from all over Israel, Jews from all over the diaspora scattered here, there, and yonder, returned to Jerusalem as required by the law to celebrate the Passover in town. And so the city increases greatly in size. Traffic is, well, foot traffic, animal traffic is congested. They had known of the perimeter. It might have made them think of it as all of these people came in and the city became Crowded. And as Jesus is there, of course, the focal point of all this activity in the city is the temple itself. And we read that Jesus in the temple, verse 14, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Well, that in itself was not unusual. After all, when people came to the city as a convenience, For the offering that was required to be made, the animals that they needed, there would be people there who were willing to sell them the animals that were required to make the sacrifices that they had to provide when they came back for the Passover. And the temple tax had to be paid in the uh, coin of the realm. And so they would come from various places bringing their different uh, kinds of money and they could exchange it there Uh, with the money changers and be able to pay the temple tax uh, with the proper money. Now, Jesus obviously was displeased with this. Uh, Why? Well, 
it's not so much what was taking place itself. Some have suggested that the, uh, the people selling animals were taking advantage of those who were there, or maybe the money changers uh, uh, giving people a bad deal on the exchange rate. And there may have been some of that going on, but that's really not the main problem. And in fact, uh, it did provide a service to those who came to be able to exchange money, to be able to purchase their animals when they got to the city rather than having to travel considerable distance perhaps with animals in tow. Now, Jesus was not so much upset at what was going on as where it was going on because this was taking place in the temple. Verse 14, in the temple he found those who were doing these things. Or to be precise, this was taking place in the outer court of the temple, uh, also known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place that Gentiles were permitted to go in the temple complex. And when Jesus sees that, when he goes in and, and sees all of this, this commercial activity, hearing the lowing of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep and the cooing and flapping of doves and conversation and haggling and talking going on, it disturbs him greatly because this is the only place that the Gentiles are able to come. And it denigrates the entire temple to have all of this activity taking place within its boundaries. And so we read in verse 15, Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Uh, Probably not using the whip on the people, but as anyone who's led large animals know, you have to get their attention and get them moving in the right direction. And Jesus begins driving them out and the sheep, the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. And really the point, do not make my father's house a house of trade, a place that was meant for worship, a place that was meant to be a place of reverence and contemplation and even outreach to Gentiles uh, in this particular area had become a bazaar. It become a place for buying and selling and commerce. No matter how necessary, it was out of place in this location. And we read verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. This was not an expression of anger. This was not just some outburst of pique. But rather, this was, on Jesus' part, a a holy, uh, righteous, and right zeal for the purity of the house of God and the worship of God and the access of the presence of God and the worship of God to those who were outside. And in his zeal for those things, Jesus drives out the animals and the money changers and all this commerce taking place. Well, that sets up an interesting response after Jesus does this. The question comes in verse 18 from the Jews. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's a curious question because they really don't challenge Jesus on what he did. It almost sounds like that. They were expecting that. But that's not what they're asking. They don't say, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. You know, they do this all the time. And then probably came, came back in in Jesus' own time. In fact, uh, most likely, since this occurs early in John's Gospel, and we read it later in the other Gospels, this quite possibly happened twice. 
Some have suggested John just puts it early in Jesus' ministry, describing something that actually happened later. I don't think that. I think that this actually happened early in Jesus' ministry and later in Jesus' ministry, because this wouldn't have cleared them all out once and for all. Jesus was making, in many ways, a symbolic point. But they don't say, Jesus, that's wrong. You know, they've always gathered here. What do you mean throwing things in a disorder like this? That's not what they ask him. They say, what sign will you give us to show the authority you have to do this? Because what Jesus was doing, in essence, was making an implicit claim to ownership of the temple. An implicit claim, really, to Messiahship. And the Jews perceive that. Jesus is making a claim here, and their question to him is, what sign will you give us? Well, as often is the case when they ask for signs, they, they were asking on the basis of a sign. What Jesus himself already just did was a sign of sorts. But they wanted something amazing. They wanted something miraculous. They wanted something unexplainable. What kind of miraculous sign? What kind of unexplainable, mysterious thing can you do or perform or tell us, as they say, for doing these things? Now, several times when Jesus is asked by the Jews for a sign, he, he responds by not giving them really what they want. And yet he does respond. He always points to the resurrection. Remember in Matthew, some Jews come up to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. You know, you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, I will not give any sign except... The sign of whom? Jonah. The sign of Jonah, you know, in the belly of the whale, and then he comes out. Itself, read uh, read Jonah chapter 2, itself, a a kind of death and resurrection, a death and rebirth uh, of a sort of the prophet Jonah. And so Jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Which is a a vague answer, but it is an answer, and it points toward Jesus' own resurrection, going into the belly of the earth and coming out alive. Well, here, Jesus also points to the resurrection, but he does so in a different metaphor, a different picture. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that's a sign. And they understood Jesus to be referring, of course, to the physical structure of the temple. By their reaction, the Jews, you can imagine their, their outrage, their amazement. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? It's not so much they're saying, yeah, we'd really like to see that. They're saying, no way. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. That's ridiculous. Of course, they were looking at the, this magnificent temple, Herod's temple. They begun construction on it about uh, 20, maybe 19 B.C. And work was still going on 46 years later. And in fact, it wasn't finished. They're not saying it's complete now after 46 years. They're saying we've been working on this thing for 46 years. It still wasn't finished. In fact, it wasn't finished until A.D. 63, uh, only seven years before the Romans came and tore it down. But it was a magnificent structure, beautiful, beautiful structure. Uh, expensive, gold everywhere, magnificent structure. Herod started the, the construction of it, uh, one, to satisfy his own lust for construction and building, but also he wanted to, uh, to please the Jews with whom he was unpopular. 
And he thought by rebuilding this temple and doing a, a grand job of it, he, to, he would win favor with the Jews. And so, of course, they're, they're skeptical. And we've been building this for 46 years, and you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? Well, it's nonsense. But, of course, Jesus had something else in mind. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, again, Jesus gives them a sign, gives them something to look out for. Uh, and again, it's somewhat veiled. They took him to mean the building, but he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about the temple of his body. Now, there's something here, if we could kind of put this on pause and, and think briefly about uh, redemptive history. That is God's working through the Old Testament, the New Testament in the real world and to the present day in the work of saving his people. You go back to uh, Old Testament Israel early on. Where was God present with his people? In the tabernacle, right? That, uh, that worship facility that was made of frames and, and curtains and skins uh, that could be assembled, that could be taken apart and carried, moved with uh, Israel when they moved and then set up again in the new location, basically an elaborate and fancy tent. And then later, uh, David wanted to build, after Israel had won the promised land, was established there. David had built his palace. He wants to build a house for God. We read that passage uh, last week. Uh, and the Lord sends Nathan says, no, you're not the one to do it. My, your son, Solomon, will build a, the temple, a house for God, and I will, build, I will make you a house, a dynasty that will continue. But the, the temple was built there in Jerusalem, and that became the focal point. Of, of God's presence that had the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Basically the same layout, same floor plan as the tabernacle. It was just a permanent and uh, beautiful building that was for the worship of God, the offering of sacrifices, and symbolized the presence of God in the midst of his people. Now here, of course this wasn't Solomon's temple, this was Herod. Solomon's was, was torn down when the Babylonians took Jerusalem and so forth. You read about the reconstruction of Jerusalem and so forth with Ezra and Nehemiah. But then Herod comes and builds this temple, this beautiful structure that's there. Uh, and, that, and Jesus starts speaking about the temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. When Jesus came, God was present in the midst of his people in Jesus, remember Christmas, Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the body of Jesus, as Paul writes, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus was, in a very real sense, the temple. He was the presence of God here on earth. But you know, Jesus is also here pointing to the end of that physical structure as the, the, the presence of God, not only in himself, but looking forward to the church. Because the scriptures go on to tell us that the church becomes the temple of God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says to them in chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you... That's plural, that you all, y'all, you know, all of you together 
are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. In other words, he's warning those who would bring dissension and destruction to the church that they are attacking the temple of God because God, by his Holy Spirit, dwelling in believers means that we are the temple of God. God doesn't dwell in a building these days. We don't go to a particular place, a particular piece of geography or a particular building to find God there. God is in the midst of his people. God is in the church. But because the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, we too individually are the temple of God. And Paul brings that up just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, warning them against involving their bodies in immorality. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Jesus himself, while he's on the earth, is the temple, the the presence of God. And now that he has ascended and given his Holy Spirit, the church, both collectively, is the temple of God. And individually, we, in whom the Holy Spirit lives, uh, are individually the temple of God. So Jesus was pointing here to a significant change. God was going to be doing something new, and the place of worshiping him was no longer this this real estate in Jerusalem, but he was present in his church, and he's present in each believer by the Holy Spirit. And as if to put an exclamation point on that, God in his providence has this magnificent temple raised to the ground by the Romans in A.D. 70. So Jesus is saying something very significant here, and these words made an impact We read later uh, in the gospel, later when Jesus was arrested, uh, Matthew chapter 26, that there were those who came and accused Jesus. Uh, uh, Matthew 26, verse 60, false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they remembered what Jesus said. And later they, uh, they throw that up against him in his trial. And even at his crucifixion, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, the crowd who was around him, those who passed by uh, mocking him, said, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And even Stephen, uh, back in, uh, or later in uh, Acts chapter uh, 6, uh, is accused of being with Jesus, who, who spoke of destroying the temple and changing the traditions of Moses. So what Jesus says here in John chapter 2 makes quite an impact. They remember it, and they use it against him at his death. But Jesus wasn't talking, except indirectly, about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And John comments, verse 22, when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. You see, his detractors, his opponents, his enemies remembered he'd said it, and they threw it in his face when he was on trial. They threw it in his face, mocked him with it when he was on the cross. But you see, when Jesus' body, his temple, was destroyed on the cross, and placed in the grave, and three days later came out alive, 
The disciples remembered that he had said this. And as a result, they believed the scripture. What scripture? Well, it's hard to pinpoint it. It doesn't say. We could think of references in the Old Testament, uh, quite possibly uh, Psalm 16, where it says, uh, You preserve my soul from Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption, pointing forward to Christ. Uh, Maybe the same scripture that was referred to in our gospel reading earlier uh, in John 20, when it said that they came to the tomb and they believed the scripture. They didn't understand to that point, but then they believed. It's amazing how much things can open up in hindsight. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, they remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, this is a sign, the sign I will give you. When we gather here to remember the resurrection of Christ, We are remembering the fulfillment of a sign that Jesus gave to prove that he was telling the truth. That proves that he was who he said he was. For believers, it's a sign that Jesus was telling the truth. And that means that he has the right to come in, clean house in your life. Just like he cleaned house in the temple that day. He has the right to come in and drive out the sins that he finds there and the noise of idolatry. He has the right to come in with a whip and drive out those things that defile us and offend God in our lives. But it also means he was telling the truth, that he rose from the dead and he has accomplished your salvation. He says that he's coming again. Do you believe that? He says that when you die, you will be with him in heaven. Do you believe that? Well, he said that he would rise from the dead after three days, and in fact, he did. So it is a sign for believers that Jesus was telling the truth. But it's also for unbelievers a sign that Jesus was telling the truth. About what? Well, Jesus spoke of judgment for those who would not believe in him, those who reject him. In fact, the next chapter in John 3, Jesus says that he came for those who would believe in him, but for the one who does not believe, he is condemned already, condemned under the the wrath and judgment of God. But it also means he was telling the truth for unbelievers about the salvation he came to offer. In John 7, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, that is, if your soul is parched and empty and hungry, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow springs of living water. Jesus said a couple chapters later, John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said the sign was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And he did. And so we can count on the other things that Jesus said being true. Because you see, a prophet is proved by the fulfillment of his prophecy. Does it come true? Was Phil Connors a prophet? Not hardly. He'd lived the same day over and over and over and over. He just knew what was going to happen. But Jesus proves himself to be one and more than a prophet, the Messiah himself, by making and fulfilling a most unlikely prediction. His death and resurrection proved his authority to cleanse the temple. His death and resurrection proved his authority to cleanse and rule our lives. See, after Jesus was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said it. 
We need to remember it too. And like the disciples, believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. And believe in him, our crucified and risen Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Jesus indeed speaks truth. Though the crowd reacted in stunned disbelief, skepticism, and even blindness in their inability to perceive what he was saying. Yet, Lord, we thank you that when it happened, the disciples remembered. Jesus had said it was going to happen, and it happened exactly the way he said. Father, we know that we can count on the words of Jesus. We can count on the words of the Scriptures, which is your word. And, Father, we thank you for the promises that it makes that death does not have the last word, that Jesus has defeated death for us, for all who believe in him. We praise you, risen Savior. Amen.